Uh, let's, let's pray together this evening. Father, thank you for uh, a church that is so connected with our student ministry, not to mention the, uh, the children's ministry and preschool and those volunteers who are teaching Bible stories tonight and caring for those kids and teaching them about missions. But God, we thank you for, for Jaron and his desire to see our students grow in faith. God, thank you for this United Weekend. I know uh, those youth leaders and volunteers put so much uh, time and work into this. And Father, we know that ultimately it's the work of your spirit in these students' lives. Many of them coming maybe just because it's something else to do or they've gone all the other years so they'll go again. But Father, I pray that for some of our students that this weekend would be a turning point for them. God, that they would think about their faith in you in a way that they haven't done before, that they would be encouraged to live out their faith at school, they'd be encouraged to share their faith with others. Uh, and God, for any of our students that maybe have, have gotten off track or have, have lost some of that focus on you, that weekends like this, uh, whether around adult volunteers, whether around um, other believers, God, there can be a chance for them to refocus. Father, we pray for uh, those families who have been mentioned tonight with family members in the hospital and God, for Janelle not knowing about her mom passing away this morning, God, we pray for, for her family. God, we pray for, for the Whitmills with Sue right now. So many families, God, that we see that are, that are hurting and going through these times. And God, we know that your, your spirit empowers and sustains us. You give us your word to sustain us, and you give us the church. And all those things working together, God, the way that you use spirit, word, and church to build up the body. And so, Father, we're so thankful for that um, in our lives individually and what that means for, for our church. We pray for those who are on mission right now or preparing to go on mission trips, God, that you would prepare their hearts and those details. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would, open your Bible to Joshua chapter 14. On the back table is our half sheet, but stapled together, and so if you didn't pick up one of those note sheets and you'd like one of those, feel free to, um, to go back and, and get that. We are going to cover, in some sense, Joshua 14 through 19, partly because there are a lot of place names in there, and I'm not going to read them all this week. I've attempted to other times, but we're going to be skipping several of those, those lists, but also because 14 through 19 fit together, so to speak, as a unit. So it works well to, to cover those units, and we're going to do that in, in pieces tonight. So let's begin in chapter 14, verse 1. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded, by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Okay, let's stop right there for just a minute. So you get a summary here of the land on the east side of the Jordan River that is going to be divided into two and a half tribes. And on that second stapled page, I was able to find, it's hard to find a map of this section of scripture that is easy to read and that really seems to do the job, but this is a solid map. And it's, I tried to enlarge it to the point that it would be somewhat readable. You'll have to break out your, uh, uh, your magnifying glass or your bifocals or whatever would help. But uh, you get the idea there that on the east side of the Jordan River, you see Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. And then obviously you're going to see Manasseh as well on the west side. And that's what it means by two and a half tribes. Half of Manasseh's land is on the east side. Half is over there on the west side. And so if you want to refer back to this map from time to time, it, we'll come back to it. But it's, it's a helpful explanation of what's happening there. It mentions the Levites. We'll cover that section next week when we get to chapters 20 and 21, but the Levites weren't given a, given a section of land, so to speak. They're going to be given cities within the different sections of land, and so we'll cover that next week. The nine and a half tribes that are going to be there um, on the west side of, of the land is what's, what's mentioned. Now, one thing stands out, though. If you go back to verse 2, it says their inheritance was by lot. And I know that it'd be easier to kind of read over that quickly, but uh, you may have heard about this story that a couple of weeks ago in Virginia, the 94th district there in Virginia, there was a Democrat, Shelley Simons, and the incumbent Republican, David Yancey, were tied in an election on November the 7th. And so under Virginia law, the winner was determined, do you know how? By lot, yeah. Which I think this is somewhat common at the local level. It's less common to see that at the state level. But two names in the hat, you draw the, apparently certain local municipalities and some states even have special hats that have been designed for these type of uh, situations. The names go in, one name comes out, and that's who is going to win, win the election. Uh, you think about after uh, an, an over, we don't want to, you know, open recent wounds or anything, but uh, an overtime game and the flip of the coin of by lot who's going to receive, uh, receive that uh, ball first or at least the choice to who gets the ball, that type of thing. What does it mean that they receive their inheritance by lot? Well, the word very much is just the word for a rock or a pebble and how decisions would be made. One would be drawn in your favor or not in your favor. You think of the old idea of drawing straws. That's, that's what's being talked about here. What's behind this, though? What's going on behind the idea that the land is divided up um, by lot? It's a word, not only is it connected to the word for a rock, but as the word develops, it becomes connected to the idea of your inheritance. And so the way the, herit the inheritance was allotted out, you see the word lot, and then you see the word allotment, and you can quickly find those two things tied together. We even talked about on Sunday morning how in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, that idea of the father giving the inheritance, and that's tied in with 1 Corinthians 12 that we've been looking at. 
A couple of verses, though, related to the idea of the allot. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, we're going to turn to several places. Um, Though, on the back of your, oh, there you go. On the back of that note sheet, if you'd like to just reference it there, I've printed off some of the verses that we're going to talk about, not, not all of them, but on the back of that note sheet, you'll find some of the things we're talking about here. Leviticus chapter 16 is the story of the Day of Atonement. And if you get down to about verse 5 in Leviticus 16, it says that he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then in verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So, two animals, one's going to be sacrificed immediately, the other is going to die, but it at least gets to wander away into the wilderness, um, to die naturally, so to speak. And how was this determined? Just draw lots. One sacrificed immediately, one takes, one takes off in, into the wilderness. There on the back, a couple of verses from Proverbs that stand out. Uh, they're kind of down toward the bottom of that page. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Then Proverbs 18, 18. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. If you go to the book of Acts and the New Testament, you probably find the most famous uh, example in Scripture of drawing lots. Acts chapter 1, you have the story of the early church. I guess that's a, uh, these, these disciples replacing Judas Iscariot as who would be that 12th disciple. So you get down there um, around... Maybe verse 21 of Acts chapter 1. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. This is Acts 1 verse 22 now. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, what is striking here is this is the last time in the Bible you see drawing lots being used to make a decision. So I don't think that this becomes... Uh, the way, so to speak, that we're to give decisions because immediately after this story in Acts, what happens? 
is the sending of the Holy Spirit to, to the church. And so several times in the book of Acts or throughout the, throughout the New Testament, when his decision is to be made, it's the Holy Spirit who is guiding that decision. But here's the point to be made. Whether the lot was drawn or whether the Holy Spirit was at work, in both cases, God is directing the decision that is being made. And so in the Old Testament, the reason that the, lot, the land is given out by lots is because that was the only way to prevent quarreling. Uh, on your note sheet, there's a great quote there on, on that point. Dale Davis, whose commentary I've used a lot on, on Joshua, there under Roman numeral 1.b, he says, There could be no end of complaint, quarreling, or discontent unless the tribes were assured that their lot was determined by the hand of God. Those of you, um, as parents or grandparents or babysitters, you know that sometimes in determining fairness, drawing lots is about the only way uh, you can go to determine who gets to go first, who gets to sit in the front, who gets to uh, get the first piece of food, you have the rule about whoever cuts the food, the other person gets to select first. That way there's no like cutting the bigger piece and then you take it, you cut, and then the other person selects. That solves a lot of quarrels that way. Uh, our staff, when we go for staff lunch on Tuesday, we're terrible about fighting over where we go to eat, not because we want to pick, because we don't want to pick. Um, and so finally we just put names in a cup, and if your name got drawn, you had to pick where we, uh, we, where we go for lunch. And so... Uh, at that point, you're trusting in divine authority, and it's a unifying factor because whoever's name is drawn is the Lord. The Lord's at work there. What you see ultimately is that idea of divine authority, that God isn't at work here. He's the one guiding this process, and it's unifying. You realize whatever lot you get is because the Lord has given you. And there's the application point for us to realize, to use a New Testament idea, that if I have one talent, or two talents, or five talents, or ten talents, whatever the Lord has given me, it is his good gift. When you talk about spiritual gifts, that the Spirit apportions, divides out, allots the gifts of God, because that's his will. That's what he wants. Here's something really fun for you. When you get to 1 Peter 5, and it's talking to the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, it uses the same word to talk about how the leader has been allotted a particular group of people or a particular church. So, so to speak, you're who I was given. Uh, you're the lot that I drew. Uh, for better or worse, here we are together. Like, I was given this lot. The, the, but here's the helpful thing. In 1 Peter 5, the reason that's brought up is because in life and in pastoring, there's always that temptation that you want to pastor the church you wish you had and not the church that the Lord had allotted you? Easy connection point. I want to live the life that someone else was allotted and not the life that I was given. Like, why was I not dealt that hand? Man, if I was dealt that hand, I would be blowing it out of the water. I would be so much better. I could live that person's life better than they're living it, even though I'm really struggling to live my own life right now. You, you, see, the, you see the connection there, that this has been allotted to me by God, 
It's his good will, and so am I going to be faithful to living the life that's been placed in front of me, or I'm going to spend all my time wishing I was living somebody else's life? That picture from the land being given to the people in Joshua 14, whew, man, it hits home in a, in a really powerful way when we think about our talents, our gifts, our families, our life circumstances, where we live, all those type of things that, that have been given to us. So that's point one from, from Joshua 14, and I know that's enough to chew on for a while, but, but let's keep rolling. So let's go to Joshua 15. Joshua 14 was, here's the land, here's the life you've been allotted, be faithful to what's God, what God's given you. It's, it's his authority. He's the one making that decision. Now, you get to chapter 15, and verses 1 through 12 essentially just give how the land was apportioned to Judah. You flip back to your map, you look down there to kind of the southwest part of the map, west of what would be the Dead Sea, and you're going to see Judah's land, and you're going to see Simeon referenced down there further south. But, but Judah has that, that land west of the Dead Sea. So 1 through 12, give that. Skip down to chapter 15, verse 13, though. So we're in Joshua 15, verse 13. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Remember the Anakim were the dreaded uh, uh, giants of that land. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, Whoever strikes Kiriath-sephir and captures it, to him I will give Achish, my wife, or my daughter, as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as wife. When she came to him, she urged him, her new husband, to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Here's another uh, situation where sometimes the Bible is, and, and especially the Old Testament at times, is portrayed as very misogynistic or, or anti-woman, anti-female. Um, <laughs> what you find here, though, is Caleb, who's known for his fearlessness, known for his faith, known for saying, hey, we can take that land, we're going to go. Even, we, we read last week, even when he's old, he's still sure that he can take the young guys. He wants to be out there in the battle. And you find that his daughter got some of the same spunk. <laughs> she gets her land, she gets her husband, and she says, oh, we can do better than that. Let's go back and ask dad for some more. Um, those of you with daughters, uh, you give what you think was a good amount of money uh, to be able to go out and have a good time, or you give what you thought was a good thing, and they come back and say, I'd really like some more. That's actually a biblical concept, apparently, um, from, from Joshua 15. Like, hey, Dad, that was nice. Can you, can you want to up me? Uh, my dad's youngest brother had three daughters, and when it came time for those girls to get married, they knew exactly how much the one before them spent on the wedding. Uh, there was no doubt about how much had been spent. That way the next one could get the same amount, and the third one would get 
would get that amount. But you like this element here that Caleb, with his faith and fearlessness, that this is passed down to his daughter. Uh, you know in passing on characteristics to your kids and grandkids, sometimes they get the best of you, and sometimes they get the worst of you. <laughs> sometimes you pass on characteristics of yourself that you wish you had not passed on uh, to your kids. And so that spunk that is so challenging when they're little, and you think, Lord, if you could just take that and hone that in a good direction, like those kids could change the world. They're going to drive me crazy, but if you could take that element and put it in the right direction, it, it would be amazing. And so there were probably times when Caleb's daughter was younger that he thought, oh man, I'm not going to survive this. But here she is older, she gets a husband, and she still has that same spunk, that fearlessness, that faith that her dad had. And so it's a neat portrait there that shows up as, as the land's being given out. Now verses 20 through 62, we are most certainly not going to read every word of. Um, so skip down to verse 63. Yeah. Chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah cannot drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Now this begins a pattern. You're going to see it again in 16, verse 10. You're going to see it again in 17, verse 12. It really becomes the theme for the book of Judges. In fact, I think if you turn over that note sheet to the back and you look, yeah, I put Judges, Judges chapter 1, verse 1 on your, uh, on your verse list there. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The reason that verse should strike you a little bit strange is the book of Joshua is all about the people of God taking the land. They're conquering the land. They're inheriting the land. The book of Judges, the fighting goes on. The challenge is still there. Part of the reason that challenge is still there is because it wasn't fully taken care of when they first went in to the land. And so 1563 about the Jebusites not being driven out and they dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day, that's not a positive comment. <laughs> That's an idea that these people are going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to continue to cause trouble. Now, the reference there to Jerusalem, though, is really interesting because we know that obviously Jerusalem becomes a crucial part of, of the story of Scripture. Turn over to 2 Samuel. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. No, was, uh, chapter 5, I'm sorry. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I want, to see, I want you to see where the Jebusites show up again. So we're 2 Samuel chapter 5. And let's actually start let's start in verse 4. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 35 years. And the king, here's verse 6, kind of telling that story. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here. Obviously, that's a form of Bible trash talk. 
Um, like even uh, a blind and lame man could, could defeat you. Uh, I could beat you with one hand behind my back is the, kind of the modern idea. Verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack those bl- the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So that's the story of the establishment of Jerusalem, which obviously ties back to Joshua 15 with that mention of the Jebusites still being there in the city. Now go to the end of 2 Samuel. It's interesting the way 2 Samuel ends I think chapter 24 is the last chapter in the book. Yeah, that's going to be chapter 24. So one more reference here to Jebusites in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census, and it's hard to tell exactly what he does wrong. Uh, Something that obviously angers the Lord. It it seems to reflect a, a pride is ultimately what it boils down to, is the problem with this census that he takes in 2 Samuel 24. Uh, The Lord pronounces judgment uh, upon the people because of what David has done. But then go to verse 18. So we're 2 Samuel 24, 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. I want you to, there's that reference again. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aranah looked down, he saw the king and the servants coming on toward him. And Aranah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And he said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arnah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arnah gives to the king. And Arnah said, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arnah, No, I will, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That might have been a verse or a phrase that you memorized before in Scripture. But. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. <laughs> you think about the role that Jerusalem plays even to this day in this establishment of the altar there, even tying back to the story of Abraham. You start to draw that line from Abraham through David to Jesus and the role of Jerusalem in the New Testament, even up to modern day times. And so the Jebusites from Joshua 15 play a role in all of that. They're always staying in the way, and finally God leads them to establish his place of worship there, and Jerusalem is going to play a role, frankly, until the end of time, uh, the, way, the way that it plays out. So, okay, back to Joshua. So we've done 14, take your allotment, we've done 15, have a strong-willed daughter, um, and make sure you drive people out. Uh, 16, 
16, you get to the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, 16, verse 1 of Joshua. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Skip down to verse 4. The people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. Now watch really closely, because this seems minor, but it's extremely important. Verse 4, the people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. Verse 5, the territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. Dot, 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 dot. (laughs) Go down to 17. Verse 1. The allotment was then made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. Okay, hold your place once more. Go to Genesis 48. Genesis chapter 48. What you have in Genesis 48 is Israel, uh, Jacob is, is very old at this point, and so Joseph brings his kids, his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to meet their grandfather. Uh, by all accounts, Israel's old, blind, just going to give his final blessing to the grandkids, and, and he's near death. Okay, so pick it up in Genesis 48, verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring, uh, his grandkids also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So the the scene is obviously that Joseph thinks his dad is old, blind, can't get this right. So he sets up the situation so that the older son would receive the primary right-handed blessing. The younger son would receive the secondary left-handed blessing. And the old man crosses his arms and places the primary blessing on the younger son. Because so often that's the pattern exactly that you see is the one that we would expect to receive the primary blessing doesn't. That God has different plans for that. Genesis 48 down to verse 17. Genesis 48, 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim 
before Manasseh. Now, you go back to Joshua chapter 16. In verse 4, it lists the sons in birth order. Joshua 16.4, the people of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, received their inheritance. But who receives the inheritance first? Verse 5, the territory of the people of Ephraim. Ephraim is listed first. They received the inheritance first because in Genesis 48, they had received the primary blessing, even though Ephraim was the younger of, of the sons. Then you get down to verse 17, Manasseh receives a blessing, a great blessing. I mean, you look at the, <laughs> you look at the map, it's a huge area that's given, but it's the secondary blessing that's given to, to the older son. Once again, God's allotments don't always work the way we expect. God always works according to his plans. He always works according to his character but he does not always work according to our expectations. We have expectations of what we think God should do based on how we understand things. God, this is how it should go. Even to the point that we've been known to set up a situation so it will go the way we want it to go <laughs> or the way that we expect it should happen. And so often God comes in that situation and says, ah, nope, not my plan. And he crosses our plans up. The hand goes in a direction, the allotment goes in a way that we would, would not have expected. Is this character still good? Absolutely. Are his plans still certain? Absolutely. Does he work the way we expect? Not always, or even more so, not often <laughs> um, does, does that happen. But you see that playing itself out here in, in 17. Now skip down to 17, uh, let's see. There's a reference there in 17.3, we probably should pick up just quickly. Um, Joshua 17.3, now Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. So he had the expensive weddings. Um, and, and these are the names of his daughters. Uh, Mala, no, Noah, I had noticed that, but she's like, man, dad did want a boy. Um, uh, Hagla, it doesn't get any better, does it? Milcah, and Tirzah, they approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons, the land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Now your reference, we're not, because of time, we're not going to go back over there, but, but the reference point is Numbers 27. In Numbers 27, this very prophecy, uh, this very commandment is given by Moses, saying, make sure this guy's daughters get the land. And so what they're doing here is they're not being, they're not acting out of turn, so to speak. They're just claiming the promise that have been given to them in Numbers 27 from Moses saying, make sure these girls get the land. Once again, the Bible so often portrayed as anti-female, misogynistic. Here you have a situation where God is obviously protecting these women to make sure they receive land because otherwise they are, they are out on their own here as only having daughters. And so 
interesting uh, section right there. Go down to 1714. So we're still with the people of Joseph. Joshua 1714. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those of Beth Shean and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, To Ephraim and Manasseh, you see the order in there again, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. It's hard to know um, kind of how to make sense of what's going on here. You have a situation earlier where the daughter comes and asks for more land. That's considered to be a good thing. Here, though, the situation isn't so much stepping out on faith. They want more land because they don't want to go take the land that was already given to them because it's difficult. And so what I put there on your notes under Roman numeral 3.C, they are discontent with God's gifts, and they have a distrust of God's power to allow them to really take the land that had been given them. They had plenty of land, they just didn't want to go take it because it was going to be particularly dangerous. There's an intentional contrast between Caleb's faith at the beginning of 14 and the lack of faith from Joseph's sons here at the end of 17. And so it's meant to frame 14 to 17. At the beginning, you have this example of faith. Here at the end of 17, you have these people who are unwilling to go and take the land that's given to them. Now that's a good segue to 18 and 19 here. 18 and 19, you have the key, uh, you have the allotment to, to the remaining seven tribes. And there are key markers in 18 and 19 that show you that this is not just a random section of Scripture put together. It's meant to fit together. 14, 6 to 15, Joshua 14, 6 through 15 is the story of Caleb. You go over to 19, 49 through 50. So we're jumping over to Joshua 19 to the very end of that section. Really for all of 18 and 19, I would just refer you to that map that is, is stapled there. But uh, 1949, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, and the hill country of Ephraim, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. When God first called the people to go into the promised land, who were the only two that wanted to go? Caleb and Joshua. 14 through 19 of Joshua that gives us the allotment of the land, Caleb gets it at the beginning of that section, Joshua gets it at the end of the section purposely framing that God always promised that he would give the land to the people. The only two who took the promise, Caleb and Joshua, Caleb gets it in 14, 
Joshua gets it at the end of 19. So it's, there's a purposeful bookend go, going on there. The other thing is 14.1 and 19.51 have almost exactly the same wording. It says in 19.51, these are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot. You go back and read 14.1. Almost exactly the same language. It's showing again that this is meant to be held together. The end of 51, it talks about how it was distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You go back to the beginning of 18, if you flip back or scroll up on your phone, beginning of 18, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Um, once again, Shiloh is kind of used as, as a framing device. Let's do verses 2 and 3 of chapter 18, and we're going we're gonna to stop there. Okay, 18, verse 2, Joshua 18, verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So 18 is preparing us that there are still seven tribes at this point who had not received their land. And we've already skipped ahead to 19, and so we know that they get their land. But, but Davis makes a point here that I wrote on your notes, talking about how this is another sign of the unity of the tribes. Even though these seven haven't gotten their land yet, they're going to get the land. God's going to give them different land, but they're going to get it. He always works to unify his people, even when there's diversity there. The scriptures here are not denying Christian diversity, only rebuking Christian snobbery. This idea that these seven tribes weren't going to be left out. They were going to get their land too. It might not be the same land, and it might not come at the same time, but they were going to get it. God works in diverse ways among his people, but everyone receives his gifts. Verse 3 Look at the question that asks in, in Joshua 18.3, and we'll wrap up with this. 18.3, Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? There may be some indication in Joshua's question there that the reason they hadn't gotten their land is they hadn't asked for it. They hadn't done the work to go in and and frame it out. They were supposed to go in and survey the land, essentially. They, they hadn't done it. Davis has an incredible, powerful quote on the bottom of your notes. I want us to wrap up with this. This, was, this really hit me this week. Very bottom of the note sheet. Yahweh has promised the land, but it must be possessed. Yahweh's promises are intended not as sedatives, but as stimulants. God does not want us to swallow his promises but to seize them. Uh, God has laid before his people all of this inheritance, all of this good allotment that he's given to them, but that promise is no good if we just sit there and stare at it. God says, get to work. This is that old tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God has promised good things for his people, but he calls his people to faith and action, to say there's the promise now, get up and go take it. Go out there and survey the land. I've, I've provided this for you. So I think that's a good word to end on as we think about the way that God has given uh, his, his people this land. Let me pray for you, and we'll, we'll wrap up. 
Father, thank you for the reminder tonight that your gifts are good, that you have allotted to each of us our life and our days, and there are times that we are tempted to be discontent about that or to distrust your plans and your power. But God, we want tonight to trust you, to know that you are good, that we can always trust your character, we can always trust your plans, even when things don't go the way that we expect. God, help us to live by faith, but not a faith that draws back and says, I'll just sit here and wait to see what happens. It's a faith that calls us to action. So God, we trust your promises, we trust what you have for us. God, we pray that we would move ahead with courage. Um, and God, thank you for, for this group of people here tonight and their desire to do that and what they mean to me and my family and, and the desire to do that together as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.